uh, bringing us here today. Lord, I pray you to just clear out of our heart and mind uh, some of the things that would prevent us from listening and paying attention. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our mind to your word, help us to, to wrestle down some of the difficult things um, that your word teaches us. I pray that we would receive it with humility and um, with the desire to want to work through it and make sure that our own life is being aligned with your word, even if it wasn't aligned with your word before. And so, Lord, help us every day to do that. And uh, just bless us this morning for the sake of your great name. Amen. All right. Today we are looking at uh, the subject of uh, what God has joined together. Uh, that course has to do with uh, issues related to issues related to uh, of course divorce and remarriage now this is a very uh, like I said already a difficult subject it's confusing people write on it and uh, it seems to be once you read something you're more confused and uh, so I want to try to simplify things as much as possible today by looking at the scripture. And um, th- uh, hopefully I'll get through everything that I want to say today. But let me just start with this, that there are three reasons for the rise of divorce among professing Christians today. The first reason is, of course, a reason for other things is that there's a, there is a weak view of the authority and sufficiency of scripture. All right, there's a weak view of that uh, amongst uh, the broad scope of the church. Uh, so that means that if the Word of God is not the final authority on wh- how, why you make decisions or why you do something or don't do something, if, if that's not a high priority, then, of course, other things get in, uh, like man's wisdom gets in there and man's opinions gets in there and, and some authority who wrote on it, who have no, has no reference to the Word of God, gets in there, and then people get all uh, twisted on what, what, what does it exactly say. And then a second reason would be uh, weak teaching, counseling, and example in churches on biblical divorce and remarriage, all right? That there's, there's not an example anymore in the church. Uh, there's nobody to look up to. Uh, people aren't saying definitively what they should do or not do. And so that is a reason why uh, there's a rise in divorce in, amongst Christians. All right? And then, of course, uh, one of the, there's more reasons, but these are some of the top ones. Uh, neglect of biblical church discipline. When you know, something is awry, it's not being taken care of by uh, you know, the discipline that we, we should be using in the church, not only... Uh, everyday discipline where you're hearing the word of God and adjusting your own life, but also discipline where we're going to somebody and confronting them, one, and then two, and then three, and if they don't listen, bring it to the church and let God work in there. And when he does, uh, he, his name is glorified when, it, when it's done the right way. All right, so those are some of the first things just to throw out to you. The second uh, thing is the underlying principles. There are some underlying principles uh, and the first one would be that of God's plan for marriage. Um, and I, I do want you to take your Bible. We are going to look at some passages of Scripture. Uh, just take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 19, which is going to be our main text today. And then you, want, you may want to stick your, your hand in Deuteronomy chapter 24. right? But there is, there's been the plan of God, all right? And the plan of God in Matthew chapter 19, look at verse number 4. It says, and he answered and said to them, said, said, have you not read? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and join to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. And then verse 6 says, so they are no longer two but one flesh, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And then they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And then if you notice at the end of verse number 8, it says, But from the beginning 
It has not been this way. So the, there's a principle here, and the principle was laid out in the book of Genesis, and now Jesus is actually bringing up Genesis in Matthew 19, and here's the principle. One husband and one wife for life. That was God's principle. All right? And in, in the mind of the Lord, that is still the principle. So when somebody becomes a believer and comes into the church, whatever their marriage situation is when they become a believer, they need to line up with the original plan that God had for all those who would uh, believe. All right? And so that is the basic principle there. And of course, then the other principle would be uh, in Malachi chapter four, or excuse me, chapter two, where the word of God really tells us there. Well, the second thing is uh, it involves God joining two uh, to be one flesh. But there's a, there's a second thing. And of course, it is is it is. Um, there's the scripture and. And if you notice uh, God's view on divorce in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, uh, I'm going to read up from verse 14 of Malachi. Malachi, last, the last book of the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with your Bible yet. It says, yet you say, for what reason, Malachi 2, verse 14, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously. Now, those words he's using there, you deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. That's very important in scripture because what is Malachi? Malachi is the last word of the prophets. Christ, I mean, the, God does not speak through a prophet again for 400 years after Malachi. That's when John the Baptist steps on the scene. So that means that the book of Malachi is about hypocrisy. All right? Everybody's going to church in the temple, right? The building's built, everything's done, they're doing the sacrifices, they're doing everything they're supposed to do, but their heart's far from God. They're hypocritical, right? So that's what Malachi is about. Uh, and so what happens in a hypocritical situation is that people don't take the word of God seriously, and the men start dealing treacherously with their wife, all right? And things get real twisted, and people begin to question everything that God said to do and how God planned everything. And that's what you have in hypocrisy. Well, I don't really know if God really said that. And I don't know. Like that's what he starts out in Malachi chapter one. Lord, you said you love. Where do you love us? We don't see you love us. You know what I mean? They start questioning God, and that's matter of fact. That is the first indication of hypocrisy. You start saying, "Well, I don't know if I believe that," when it's clear in Scripture. I don't know if I should do that. And, uh, and so, in this passage of Scripture, look at verse number 15, well, verse number uh, 14, the last part, it says, though she is your companion and the wife of your covenant. And then verse 15, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. And verse 16, here's the verse. All right, and it's this, that God hates God, I, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garments with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. All right, so in other words, in Malachi, it's very clear that the Lord hates divorce. So not only did the Lord in original, his original plan, one man, one woman forever, but even at the end of when God speaks through prophets, he still reiterates to the nation of Israel that I hate when somebody has broken my original plan. I hate that, all right? And so, and especially when the men start dealing treacherously with their wives, and then the family unit starts getting all twisted and, and out of place, and then the whole nation is weakened because that is happening. And so the Lord clearly tells us that he, he hates that kind of activity, and, and we really shouldn't be part of it. 
uh, as believers. So, so see, really, the Lord is, is going to align our thinking now of not what, the, what we thought or what the world says or what somebody else told us, but what does God say on it? See, that's the point. And so, as we look at it, there, there's also four views that one may hold when it comes to divorce and remarriage. There are, there are four views that somebody may hold. Here's the first one, all right? That uh, divorce and remarriage are okay for virtually any reason. That's pretty much the mindset of our country, right? And that mindset gets into people's philosophy of life, all right? And so that's there. It's, it's everywhere. It's prevalent. Marriage is not uh, so important anymore. Uh, so I don't even have to get married anymore. And so uh, I, can, I can do pretty much what I want. And so that's prevalent today. Uh, and, and there's a second one, that both divorce and remarriage are forbidden under all circumstances. That's another view that's being held. And um, there's a third view, that divorce is permissible under certain, certain circumstances, but remarriage is forbidden. All right? And then there's another view. And it's this. Divorce and remarriage are both permitted, but only under certain circumstances. Or views that are out there today. Now, which one do you think is the correct one? <laughs> Why, just because I, I put a different color around it, do you think that's it? Maybe it's not. Uh, you guys are too smart, I'm telling you. All right, let's underline it. All right. Now, th- this is the one that seems to line up. Of course, it's a general thing, but it lines up with Scripture. that The Bible does teach on divorce and remarriage, uh, but under very strict circumstances. All right? and, and it manifests. That's what we're going to do now. We're going to look, and we're going we're to go back for a minute, and we're going to look at... at uh, take a look at what was taught on this subject by Moses, all right? Now, if you, somebody look up um, Matthew 19, verse 6. 19, verse 6. Brian, why don't you do that? 19, verse 6, and read that. Because this is a question, I think that's this the verse I'm thinking of. This is the question that the scribes and Pharisees had for Jesus. What does it say, Brian? Okay, ver- just read verse Matthew 19, verse 6 and 7. Is it verse 7? So, of course, the Pharisees and scribes are always trying to trip Jesus up and trying to get an answer out of him, uh, hopefully to, you know, pin him down so they can crucify him earlier than he should have been. Of course, he was crucified at the given time, so they couldn't have done anything anyway. But they always try to trip him up. Here's the question, right? The question is, um, didn't Moses give a writing of divorce to people? Didn't he do that? Yes, he did do that, all right? So, but let's look at it. What exactly was Moses teaching, all right? Uh, Let's go back to Deuteronomy, Old Testament, right? Deuteronomy chapter 24. In this chapter, this passage really lays down where the Lord begins to answer that question. And so here's Moses' teaching on the subject. Now, I don't have an overhead on this, but I want you to listen on that or a PowerPoint on this one. It's, it's simply this, that Moses was teaching at least three things in this passage of Scripture. The first thing was this. He was actually, he was actually limiting divorce to certain, certain causes. Verse number one of Deuteronomy chapter 
number 24. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And then it says, of course, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. Let me stop right there. Just think of this for a minute. Moses had indeed been divinely directed to allow divorce. In what cases? Well, the cases are not defined, actually, in this passage of Scripture, but it could have been for some uncleanness. Now, these are coming out of Leviticus. Uh, Some manner of nakedness, some shameful thing, some vile thing, some inappropriate thing, whether it would be natural, moral, or physical. All right, the point being this, Jesus, even in the New Testament, doesn't elaborate on that. For that means that that's not the important thing. The important thing was God did allow Moses to give a certificate of divorce to the woman by the man. But it was not because of adultery. See, the reason why it was not because of adultery, because the penalty of adultery in the Old Testament was what? Was death. All right, so it wasn't for adultery. It really was to prevent people from giving a writing of divorce to a woman for just thing. So he was limiting the man not to give a divorce for just anything. There had to be specific things. And, of course, the specific things, they knew what it was. The scripture doesn't elaborate on the specific things, but there was something that was, was legitimate that the man could bring to the elders and they could decide uh, what to do. So remember, if a man or a woman committed adultery, the penalty under the Old Testament law economy was death by stoning. So the marriage was ended by death, not divorce. Second thing he says in verse number one is that he must write her, the man must give her a bill of divorce, all right? That means the marriage was not adulterous. That wasn't the reason why he did it. If a man divorces his wife because of some indecency, all right, not further defined, as I already mentioned, he must give it a certificate of divorce to her, all right? Now, this was, a com- was commanded to protect the woman in that day that she had been that she could be dismissed, but everybody would know that she was not dismissed because of some unfaithfulness, but because of something else. And so here Jesus really doesn't go into uh, force on what that was in the Gospels. Instead, he insists that the law was pointing to the sanctity of marriage. It was... In other words, that, and in fact, if you look also in verse number two to four of Deuteronomy, it says this, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. If, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. All right? So it's saying there, thirdly, that the first man is not allowed to marry her again. All right? So Moses only permitted divorce, that if she becomes another man's wife and is divorced again, the first man cannot marry her. Now, why? Why can't the first man marry her? Because if you look in verse number four, it says, then, then her former husband who sent her away, marry or take her again to be his wife, since, if you notice, it's a sense, that word there, she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. All right? In other words, that if she went back to her first husband, uh, that would actually be uh, adultery. And so the Lord was forbidding that kind of activity to happen 
to keep down uh, rampant adultery. All right, because that's really what he brings up in the gospel, which we'll look at in a minute. Now, I'm, I'm just giving you what Moses is saying, what, what, what the teaching of Deuteronomy is. So the scripture really does teach here that first, that marriage is not something you can walk in and out of at will. This bill of divorcement was a permanent thing, that she could not go back, that if you're going to decide to put her out, she cannot go back to you. All right? So the man had to really think seriously, if I do this, then it, I can't have her back. Uh, so it was keeping down that all right, rampant. Uh, of course, it was, it was really looking at it so that if she walked out or if he put her out, it was a permanent thing. And secondly, Deuteronomy really commanded a person not to remarry an illegitimately divorced person, that both really curtailed rampant adultery and hard-hearted abuse against women. So it was really put in place for the protection of a woman and also for to cut down rampant adultery. So one thing is sure, adultery undermines the fabric of not only the family but of a nation. And so the Lord was, was preventing that from happening. That's why he told Moses to do that. He, he told Moses, he permitted Moses to do that. And why was that? Because of the hardness of their heart. Because stubborn and they didn't want to do it God's way and they didn't want to continue to keep the original plan of God. And so for, for God to protect women, he allowed Moses to give a writing of divorcement to the woman to send her away. So a person would know she wasn't sent away because she committed adultery. You understand that? All right, so that's what, uh, what that was in place for. Now, that's, that's quite, uh, that's the short version of Deuteronomy 24. Now, let's go back to the New Testament. And I want you to notice what the Pharisees and scribes were teaching, what was behind what they taught. Right? Because remember, the question was, didn't Moses per, per, permit, uh, give a permission to, uh, to put into the hand of uh, the wife uh, a certificate of divorce? And of course, he did permit it. But what was behind their question in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 31, it says, And it was said, whoever sends away his wife... Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce, right? By time Jesus, uh, John the Baptist got on the scene, right? Remember why John the Baptist got put in prison? Anybody know why? Why? That's right. Now, that, that's, that's pretty important. That's not just a random situation. The reason why that's recorded in Scripture is because there was rampant adultery going around, around not only in that, during that time, but in the nation of Israel. All right? And so the scribes and Pharisees were really influenced by three schools of taught, thought. All right? One of them was the, uh, the, the Shamites. And the Shamites believed that... Uh, The only grounds for divorce is adultery. All right, some groups held to that. Another group called the Hillelites, Rabbi Hillel, who actually taught on this 20 years before Christ, uh, this, his particular teaching took hold more than any other teaching. And he said that you can, you can divorce your wife for a number of reasons, even the most trivial reasons, like if she ate too much, or if she spoke to men in public, or if she burned the dinner, or if she could not produce a male child, and the list went on and on and on and on. And so these were prevalent. So the, the scribes and Pharisees are asking Jesus, like, you know, what's, what's the deal? What, what do we, you know, what is the, if Moses seemed to give it, uh, see, the interpretation was Moses was allowed to give a certificate of divorce for any reason at all to his wife. And that was not the teaching of, of Deuteronomy 24. 
See, they didn't get the teaching. That's why Jesus says, haven't you read? Meaning what? You don't know what the scriptures say. You've twisted it. You allow someone else's teaching to get in, and that teaching replaced the teaching of scripture. And so they, they moved away from the original model, and the reason why Moses did permit a writing of, of divorce, all right? And, and so it was all twisted. Now the Lord comes back and he looks uh, in Matthew chapter 5, all right? This is what the Lord taught. In verse 32 of Matthew 5, it says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, or immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery so in this in the Lord's teaching he is saying to them listen I'm gonna give a reason one reason why there is allowed to be divorce and that is going to be for the reason of unchastity I'll just explain, explain that in a minute but if you look at Matthew chapter 19, go back to chapter 19, verse 3 to 9. You're going to find something in Matthew chapter 19. Let me, let me see if I can go back there for a minute. The Lord lays down the original intention of marriage again to them. He says in verse number four, and he answered and said to them, have you not read, all right, meaning that didn't you read the scriptures? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. In other words, he's giving the original intention of marriage, one couple, one man and one female, all right? And that, and he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh or that means that two people become one. And then also in verse number five, there's a permanent union, an unbreakable bond in marriage that God never commanded in the original intention of marriage for divorce. And of course, in verse number six, it is divinely appointed. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, God... Uh, what God therefore has joined together, let no one separate. So see, that becomes the, again, he reiterates before he teaches on what he's going to teach as the lawgiver. And remember, this is, we're talking about Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And what would the Lord keep doing in the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard it was said, right? That you now shall not do this, you shall not do that. You have heard that it was said, but I say, meaning that Jesus is raising the bar, the standard for his people. And he's saying, no, this is the way you ought to understand what I am saying about this particular subject. All right, so that means that the scripture is teaching only two grounds for divorce. first one would be unrepentant fornication. Somebody have Matthew 19, verse 9. Brian, being that you're right there, read, just read verse number 9 of Matthew 19. All right, so again, in that passage of Scripture, you see that the Lord is, is saying uh, to us, not only from 19, but from Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except, there's an exception clause, all right, that the Lord gives. And it's the word, the Greek word, actually, for unchastity or immorality, 
uh, sexual immorality would be pornea. We get the word pornographic from that word. All right, and he said he's he's saying to us, listen, pornea, unchastity could bring in several kinds of, of sexual things, fornication, various kinds of unlawful sexual intercourse, uh, such as adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, all coming from Numbers chapter 5, 11 through 31, that the Lord says, this is, this is the reason right here, is that it's for unrepentant adultery. And of course, 19, he says the same thing, all right? And I say to you, whoever divorces a wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So the Lord is really, again, uh, bringing it up so we get the sense that the reason why he is there would not be rampant adultery going on. So the basis of the exception uh, is sexual immorality. In Matthew 19, verse 7, Moses, because of the hardness of their hearts, God made a concession to weakness. Only one legitimate cause for the reason for divorce, unfaithfulness by one party. That means hard-hearted, unrepentant adultery is a question of one flesh being compromised, that the person who is guilty of adultery has broken the bond and unity with another, like he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. where it says, let me just read that real quick, 1 Corinthians 6. First Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16. And do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. And then verse 18, it says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God and that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So this, this, this sense of one union is being compromised when there is a third party and adultery takes place. So see, the, so the natural way to take the exception clause is that divorce is wrong because it generates adultery the case of fornication. In that case, where sexual sin has already been committed, nothing is laid down, though it appears that the, the divorce is then implicit uh, and permitted, but it is not, it is not mandated. In other words, uh, that a person is permitted to do it if there is unrepentant, and that's very important, sexual immorality. A person is digging in with a hard heart. They don't want to change and so therefore that the person that they're sinning against is permitted uh, to have a, a divorce. But they are not mandated to have a divorce. So sexual immorality or pornea, it is the ground for divorce but not again, a command to divorce, that if you divorce your wife for any reason and put her away without breaking, without breaking the bond, you cause her really, or with, I mean, if you break the bond, then you cause her to commit adultery, and the man that marries also a woman who has broken the bond with her husband, they commit adultery, so there's rampant adultery going on, and nobody's doing anything about it. So, the, so, so another, the result of this teaching really is a person is entitled to divorce his wife for hard-hearted, unrepentant adultery. And the divorce 
is really, really ends the marriage bond and the innocent party is entitled to remarriage. It's as if the former partner is dead. Now, I, I just want to mention something before I look at the next thing, because that, that's basically what is being said here, that God's plan from the beginning and even in the Sermon on the Mount is always repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. So that means if the person who has committed adultery repents and they change, they want to obey the Lord, then it is our obligation and the obligation of the spouse to offer forgiveness and then now to restore and reconcile that marriage. Because if we don't do that, we're not following what the Word of God says on the rest of the matter. People do fall into sin. These things do happen. That's why they're in Scripture. If we follow the, the procedure, and if someone falls into a sin and they repent of that sin, then therefore forgiveness should always be granted. Always. In fact, in Matthew 19 and 18 and throughout this, these chapters, doesn't it say that we're to forgive our brothers 70 times 7? So where proper church discipline comes in and somebody is confronted about their behavior and then an extended period of time is given for them to come and repent and they do so, then, then of course, we all, as a church should offer forgiveness and help them restore their relationship. So in all of the context of Matthew, uh, it is the Lord who is saying, listen, um, if a person does not want to repent of their hard-hearted adultery, then they... And, and you've done everything possible to uh, bring them back, to get their attention, um, to help them, to rebuke them, even as a church to step in with church discipline, and they don't respond, and you take it to the church. If the person is a professed believer and they still don't respond to the church call, then not only are they put out of the church, but that person is now permitted to divorce them. They're not commanded to divorce them. So I would say that uh, divorce should be the last resort even with a sin like this. You understand that? That we should go the extra mile that this sin could be uh, curtailed in the church and um, we, would, we, we would always go back to God's original plan for marriage. That when we get married and when we uh, say, you know, I do, that that would be something that would be a thing in our mind, that we're going to make this marriage work no matter what happens in this marriage. You know, God's given us a short time in this life. Uh, so you know, what are we going to do with it? You know, are we going to just live the way we want or are we going to um, do what God says and go back to his and sermon on the mount? is saying, listen, you have heard that it was said, but I say, and what does the Lord say? In the beginning, when I made this, it was one man, one woman, right? And it was one man, one woman for life. And what God joined together in the union of a man and a woman, and then the sexual union, let no one put away or put asunder or mess it up. Even the individuals in the marriage shouldn't mess it up. So see, when we come back to become into the church and we get into the scripture, we realize that, listen, you know what, divorce is not really an option. We really th need to think like that. What's the option? The original plan of God. Stick with it until death do us part, right? Stick with it until the end. Because when you do, you, not only you strengthen the family, you strengthen the church, you strengthen the nation, but you bring glory to God. So see, the mindset of the church should always be bringing us back to the original principles of what the Lord intended. So 
The only biblical grounds for divorce is unrepentant fornication. There's a second one. Um, and of course, this is one that the desertion of a non-believer, all right, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 through 16. Now, this was addressed by not the Lord, but by the Apostle Paul. So let's just look at that for real quick. We have uh, about 14 minutes left, all right? And um, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10, First Corinthians 7. Now, there are certain things that are laid out here for us, uh, and um, but he is teaching here. Um, let, me, let me just read the whole context, and I'll come back to it. It says in First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, uh, it says, "But to the married I give instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband." But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send he, uh, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Verse 15, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know? O wife, whether you will save your husband, and, and, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk, and so I direct in all the churches. All right, in other words, uh, there are certain directives that Paul lays down there for this section of Scripture, all right? And the first one is really... Uh, and here this, in, in this passage, at least from verse number 10, uh, we have the desertion uh, of an unbelieving spouse who initiates a divorce due to incompatibility with a Christian-believing spouse. So here, here are instructions given, to the, uh, given by the apostle, drawn from the teaching of Christ. And he also addresses an issue that the Lord Jesus did not address. And so we have have to remember that Paul was really a messenger to the Gentiles, and he is giving directives to clear up church problems, mostly probably in the, in the Gentile, among the Gentile believers. And so he gives directives first to married believers. And what is the directive he gives in verse number 10 uh, to married believers? He says, not I, if you notice, but the Lord, in, from Genesis chapter 24, uh, I mean, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Matthew chapter 19, which we just looked at, Jesus said in response to the disciples' question that God allowed Moses to permit divorce only because of the people's hardness of hearts. Then in uh, verse number 7 through 8 from that same chapter of 19, it was permissible only in the case of repeated, continuous adultery. He gives three directives in 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 10. Number one, it says the wife should not leave her husband. All right, that's, that's pretty clear. That means she shouldn't depart from him uh, or actually separate herself. That's the first thing he says. The second thing he says in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 7, if she departs, there are only two options. Number one, to remain unmarried. And number two, 
to be reconciled to her husband. So if she does separate, she must remain unmarried. That's a, a pre present tense continuous action in, in the original language. Or better, she should be reconciled to her husband. That means it's a, an accomplished action to the effect to an, a thorough change, to go and get work on your marriage and get it stable, all right? And then there's a third thing. He says that the believer, the believing husband is not to leave his wife, all right? So it's, it's not simply that Paul permits putting away or divorce in these conditions. He pro Hibits even the departure of a believing spouse or simple separation from the, in this passage of Scripture. So Scripture strongly admonishes believers not to get a divorce or separate. If they do, they will have to remain formally married for life or else go back to their covenant partner. If they get married to someone else, they become an adulterer. So again, preventing rampant adultery in, in, amongst God's people. They are disobedient to Christ's teaching and should come under church discipline. All right, now, well, let, let me just finish this and then I'll mention uh, something else. All right, so... So the first thing is directive to the married marry believers, uh, and there, there are the three things. Not to leave the husband, uh, second check mark, must remain unmarried, third, uh, or else reconcile to the husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife, so vice versa. All right? And then, of course, secondly, there are directives uh, to Christians married to unbelievers who uh, want to stay married, Oh, they want to stay, all right. And what does he say about them? Uh, well, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. So Paul is giving instructions based on the Genesis and other things that the Lord taught. Uh, and he says that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. So if someone gets saved and their spouse doesn't get saved, that spouse wants to stay, the Bible says, then don't, they can stay. You should continue to work on that marriage, even though uh, one person is with the Lord and one person is not with the Lord. Is that going to cause conflicts? Yes, it does cause conflicts. Is, is that going to be difficult? Yes, it does. And there's some people in our church that are in that situation now. And it's a difficult situation when you have an unbeliever and, and, and a non-believer. And especially, you know, if that, you know, the un, the the believer is really growing in the Lord and understanding the Word of God, and, and they, you know, they want to go talk about it with their spouse and do stuff Christian with their spouse, and their spouse not really interested. And the, the kind of, but if that person wants to stay, you have to let them stay, uh, and you have to work on your marriage. So really, the the weight is put on the person who's the Christian to be a good example, a godly example to uh, to your spouse, and and so it's saying there that a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, then she must not send her husband away. All right, that's, that's pretty clear there. And uh, then, again, under this one, there is the directive to um, someone who doesn't want to stay. Uh, in verse number 15 of 1 Corinthians 7, they don't want to stay. And if you notice what it says, yet if the unbelieving one leaves... All right, now the unbeliever has to leave. All right, let him leave. All right, the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. All right, so in other words, now in, in any case, remember, a divorce is always the last resort. And if it if it could be never named amongst God's people, that's the way it ought to be, right? Now, here, 
if you notice the stress in this passage of Scripture that he's doing something different uh, than the other ones. The other ones, listen, if you, if you have two, a, a safe person, unsafe person living in the same place and the person wants to stay, let it stay, work in your marriage, make it what, you, what, what it should be, what it could be in, in the circumstance. But if the unbeliever wants to go, they do not want to stay with the believer. All right? You've done everything possible. Maybe you don't even want the person to go. Then it says, let them leave. But that doesn't mean that you get a divorce. It means that the unbeliever separated from that person, right? Now, but if it, they leave and say, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't want anything to do with your Bible, your Christ, your anything. I'm out of here. Leave me alone. I'm done. We're done. And they try everything. She, the person who uh, is left tries everything to work on that marriage to uh, make it work, and it doesn't. Then the Bible says, then that person is no longer under bondage. All right, now that's really important uh, because that gives um, to the believer an, an understanding or that they are allowed now to remarry without committing adultery. All right, so the... See, Paul says, don't you divorce an unbeliever if you don't want to. But the Christian uh, may say something like this. Well, if the Christian says, you know what, I want a divorce. Uh, and the reason why is because, listen, I'm in light and my spouse is in darkness and darkness and light don't mix. So I'm one out of here. But if you notice in verse number 14 of 1 Corinthians 7, he says this. And this is really um, important also here. He says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the, his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but, how, but now they are holy. In other words, that when a, when a person becomes a believer and Christ comes into their life and the Holy Spirit comes into, into their, uh, the temple of their body and God begins to work in that body, light has more power than the darkness. And as the light has more power than the darkness, actually it brings sanctification in the home. The grace of God is available to those who are not even believers. All right. So in other words, he's saying don't be afraid of that because uh, you know, greater he who is in you than he who is in the world that the Holy Spirit is going to bring into your home a sanctification that is, would not be there if you weren't a believer. So the Christian shouldn't say, I want to put my, my spouse away for this reason, all right? Because there's God's given provision for that. He's given uh, something to them that uh, in their situation so they can work things out. And, and that's why it says, Husband, how do you know if you're going to save your wife? Wife, how do you know if you're going to save your husband? You don't know what's going to happen in a situation like that. So you, can you continue to stick to the biblical principles, live out a Christian life, and then, of course, then you could uh, bring glory to God, and uh, you never know your spouse may come to know Christ um, as their Lord and Savior. And then God's glorified, and now you begin to work on your marriage as a Christian couple. All right? Now, one, one may be further along in the Lord and in the truth and their understanding, but you know what? And they may have to give some concessions to ignorance and foolishness in the beginning when a person's a brand new believer. They don't know anything. They're a baby, right? But you have to work on that and work out your differences. And if you do that, uh, and some of the problems may have arisen over the years, and it gives glory to God. All right, so the directives for... Christians married to unbelievers who want to leave is simply this. That, um, well, a believer is not bound, as I was saying. Uh, and bound means to make someone a slave. And if a slave was declared not under bondage in legal documents of that day, his former owner had no claim on him, and all obligations were broken. 
It's a, the same word used in Romans 7.2 where it says, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So she's not under condemnation because she's no longer bound because the, the spouse had died. In 1 Corinthians 7.39, it says, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So another thing is, is that this is exactly the word he uses here. All right, so the, the note is they're, they're no longer under bondage. So it's actually in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense means there is a completed action, the existence of finished results. And of course here is that uh, if the unbeliever separates, let him separate. And then of course it frees the person up uh, to get married. It frees the believer up to get married so they don't commit adultery. They have to know, the point is, in all these things, we shouldn't be committing adultery. That's the point. We should be stopping adultery happening in the, in God's, amongst God's people. Every, almost every single case has to do with breaking this original plan that God had in Genesis and now moving away from it. All right, so um, okay, we got, we're done, actually. I want to leave you with this. Uh, the results of this particular teaching is this. It teaches that if a person is legitimately divorced, they can legitimately remarried. That in Corinthians here, it teaches that if a believer has been illegitimately divorced, they should remain they should either remain unmarried, separated, or be reconciled to their spouse. For them to remarry, another would commit adultery. So um, those are the two reasons in Scripture for divorce, is that if somebody deserts a non-believing partner, or, or if someone is committing unrepentant adultery. That's it. In, if they are legitimately divorced in both of those situations, they can remarry. But I know this as a pastor, that every single situation that comes to you, you must examine in detail because none are alike. And you have to determine whether this person did or did not commit adultery. Were they legitimately divorced? All right? And if they were not, then you have to bring them back to the God's original plan, and they have to repent of their sin. If they're married now and they were divorced in an unbiblical marriage, they are committing adultery, and let's say they come into the church, they need to repent of that sin. Now, of course, you, you don't tell them to get separated. They have to repent of that sin, come back to the original, and ask them about, what about divorce and remarriage? And then they have to live their life and, and be faithful in that marriage. See, that's the grace that God gives to us when we become believers. We, when, when, before we become believers, our life is a mess, right? So we become believers, and now God's putting everything back into place so we can get back to his original plans and bring glory to God, which strengthens the family, which strengthens the church, which strengthens the nation. See, that's, and it prevents adultery from um, being, becoming rampant. All right, a lot of stuff on the, I mean, it, this is really like three or four lessons. I just shoved into this, and I just hope I narrowed some, left a lot of stuff out, narrowed some things down just to give you a sense of what the scripture says on this tough subject. Let's pray. Uh, one question, because we're out of time. Yeah, what is it? Sure.
Yes, right. That's right. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's pray. If you do have any other questions about this, just talk to me, to me later on about it, because I, I may have generated some questions, but we're out of time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, again for this uh, time together. I just pray, Lord, that these things that you teach in Scripture, we would align up with them. Give us the grace, Lord, to work them out in our own life, um, no matter what situation uh, we've been in or someone else has been in, that, Lord, they would get back to your original plans. Um, they would realize that their life is short and the goal of our life should be to bring glory to your name. And I pray that would be so in our church. Help us to always be praying for each other and, and strengthening each other and even our marriages. So, Lord, our marriages become even stronger and stronger and stronger and that we uh, could, in, in that sense, strengthen uh, the church and strengthen our nation. And I pray that the church could be a place that the world can look for an example on uh, how a husband should love his wife and vice versa. And Lord, and so I pray, Lord, for this today in Christ's name. Amen.